This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that's free, so you don't have to pay in four equal instalments. Sound familiar? We'll get to that in a minute. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Nirvan Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? I'm, at, I'm excellent. It's a bit rainy outside. It's a Sydney, cold, rainy Sydney morning, but, you know. It almost looks like London. It does a little bit, doesn't it? We, mm. It's a nice studio here. We've got to look out, we can look out the window and see things, and often it's a good day. It's a bit grey and a bit drizzly, but anyway. Mate, the good news is I'm here with you. We're recording a podcast for our dozens and dozens of foolish listeners. I thought thousands. Ah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll downplay it a little bit, mate. We're, okay. we're all about under-promising and over-delivering here at Motley Fool. All right, mate. So speaking of uh, deliveries or lack thereof, and speaking of four equal installments, the company on everyone's lips is Afterpay. Now, it's been the, the rock star stock of 2018 until Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. In a short, I want to say 60 or 90 minutes on Wednesday afternoon, the shares fell almost 20%. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, if you bought at cheaper prices, you've still made a you know five, six times your money. So you're not probably crying too much. Um, but one of our colleagues, Andrew Leggett, who did buy it at cheaper prices, and well done, Leggett, you've done exceptionally well. He said, uh, we call it a spiffy pop at, at the Motley Fool. If you make in a day, same as your cost base, doesn't happen very often. He had a spiffy drop yeah. on Wednesday. He, the share price <laughs> fell more than what he originally paid for the shares. Mm. Again, he's still in clover, so he's not complaining too loudly. But, mate, what happened to Afterpay? Why did it fall out of bed? Mm. So, uh, there was an announcement out yesterday that the Senate is going to start an inquiry into uh, what they called uh, Afterpay and Payday Lenders. That's not good company to be in, is it? (laughs) No. Uh, I mean, actually, I'm surprised. This is one of the things that we've talked about a number of times is uh, um, there's going to be a point of time at which people are going to look at Afterpay and say, or regulators are going to look at Afterpay or lawmakers are going to look at Afterpay and say, well, you know, this is a basically type another type of debt. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's a short time period, right? You know, it's four equal installments. Yep. Um, it's not large amounts, but it's still another type of debt. All right. So just the people listening to us, they would say, of course it is. Why are we even making that distinction? Oh, it's because um, uh, people have lots of different types of debt, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, debt in, in your uh, credit card. You could have debt at, at, in your, as a mortgage. You could have uh, even if you payday, uh, payday lending. Mm-hmm. The, the, the issue is that, you know, most of the other types of debts are regulated one, in one way or the other. Right. Yep. And um, for most of the um, other types of, if you, if you for example, take a mortgage, you you're going to get, uh, uh, as the Royal Commission has sh- shown, you know, right. you're going to have the banks uh, uh, check whether you're credit worthy or not, whether you can afford it or not. And and the question is, at least in this case, um, are Afterpay and others mm-hmm. uh, regulated as such in the sense that are they doing enough to make sure the people who are borrowing the money. Mm-hmm are going to be eventually able to pay or is it going to put them in some form of, uh, you know, a debt stress, yep. uh, so to speak. So I think it's the right thing to do. I don't think it is um, at this point we can say that, you know, Afterpay has done anything wrong. Afterpay has created a, a category in, in mm. some sense. Mm. Um, but and, and maybe regulation will actually be helpful for them. Yeah, so here's the thing. Afterpay navigates a nice little loophole. Mm. If you provide debt, if you're a credit card provider, a personal loan provider, a home loan provider, a car loan provider, if you provide debt to somebody and say, if you borrow this money, you've got to pay it back, mm-hmm. the, the, the Parliament has said that regulators, in this case APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, has control over what you do and you have to comply with what they call the credit code. Mm-hmm. That's all fine, but the key thing about whether or not you have to comply with the credit code 
is whether or not you charge interest. Mm-hmm. So Afterpay says, no, 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 we're not charging interest. We're going to get some money from the retailer on one hand. We're mm-hmm. going to charge late fees if they don't pay on the other hand, mm-hmm. but we don't charge interest. And so as far as the regulators, as far as Parliament's concerned, these guys aren't providing a debt product at least in the way we normally consider it. And so they're not they're not subject to the credit code. Now, the credit code would require a whole lot, as you've already said, of paperwork, of credit checks, of all sorts of stuff, responsible lending practices, mm-hmm. know your customer. Afterpay has kind of skirted through it. And I, I call it a loophole. That's a little unfair. I'm not suggesting anyone's doing anything improper. Afterpay is absolutely complying with everything they're, they're obliged to comply with. It's completely appropriate. The problem is Parliament saying, hang on, I'm not sure that's what we meant. Mm. We kind of meant lay-by and stuff like that. We didn't really mean buy now, pay later with no interest and therefore you get away with it. So that's why this is particularly important for Afterpay because it may well change the playing field. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, there is, you can make an argument, right, that, the late fee is a type of interest. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, so maybe they are trying <laughs> charging interest when you're not paying. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, it's maybe. it's it's like credit cards, right? Where, you know, you have six months interest free, and after that, we charge right. you interest. Right. <laughs> I think that's that's the that's the interesting. Look, I, I you know I'm. It's hard, right? We got we got we got different horses in this race. So, mm-hmm. Afterpay was a recommendation of our service of Motley Fool Discovery 2017, which mm-hmm. is now over a year old. So we we recommended it made a decent amount of money, in fact, a large amount of money for our members. So mm-hmm. that's great. So on one hand, you know, we kind of you'd expect it to be cheerleaders for these things. On the other hand, the Motley Fool is pretty fortunate and and, and kind of to some degree deliberately so because we structure ourselves that we are not there to be blind cheerleaders for anything or any company. We're not um, in, in the lobby group kind of space where everyone's everything's good and everything's wonderful and we're, we're there to provide one-eyed cheerleading for any company that we might happen to own or recommend. In this case, I, I think if we take a broader, you know, if, if we're here for the individual investor, we're here for the individual consumer. And I don't think it's unfair that Afterpay at least should be, if not constrained, at least subject to some more requirements to make sure they're not putting their customers in undue stress. I think that's fair. And, and, and as I said, I think in the in the beginning, I mean, this might work out to their advantage. It might make it actually, they're already a pretty big player. Mm. And uh, one could think that, you know, you know there, there are copycats already out there, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this, if there are regulations, it makes it harder for yeah. new, the new entrants actually to right, come right. and disrupt, right? So this could actually be a good thing for them. Um yeah, uh, but, and, and as I said, I completely agree that you know maybe some sort of regulation or some sort of at least oversight yeah. uh, is meaningfully uh, um, useful and required, and it, it may not actually hurt their business. That's kind so. of appropriate. Right? We, if we were taking on debt, you want to make sure that the people extending debt Absolutely. are able to afford, able to pay it back. In some cases, these people are taking on afterpay debt on top of credit cards, on top of yeah. personal loans, and at some level, it's not healthy for individuals. And frankly, this is the thing I think when I've, I've been accused before of of not blindly cheerleading everything that makes life better for investors. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of cutting corporate tax rates, for example, and I've been bagged on Twitter and elsewhere of saying, you know, I thought you guys were about investors and I thought you were about making more money for shareholders. How can you want to do something that makes less money for shareholders? The answer I tend to give is that this is, we are long-term investors by by nature. Anything that makes the economy more fragile and more susceptible to internal or external shocks actually activates against the long-term interests of shareholders. So there's always going to be booms and busts, but you know, we, we're long-term shells. We have five-plus-year time horizons. Yes, you can make a little bit more money now doing something like Afterpay is doing or having lower corporate taxes or something else. To the extent that those policy decisions impact on the economy, it may well be robbing Peter to pay Paul by getting a little bit more now but having to pay for it down the track. Absolutely. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
Let's stick with retail. Let's talk about a couple of big retail stories of the last week. Mm-hmm. One here, one overseas, and I'm going to ask you to talk about them individually, and I'll ask you a question more broadly about retail. But let's start with here at home. Mm. Poor reject shop. Mate, it has been an awful, awful ride over the last few years for, for shareholders. I will disclose that one of our complete mistakes was to recommend the reject shop at Share Advisor. So we'll, we, we, we celebrate our successes. We'll take our lumps equally. Um, it, shares fell 40-odd, or maybe 33%, I think, by the end of the day yesterday, or Wednesday, sorry. Um, on the back of news that profit that was supposed to come in for the half year around $17 million mm-hmm. is going to come closer to $10 million. And same-store sales were down 4% in the last seven or 10 weeks. Mm. That's a world of hurt, mate. Is the reject shop dead in the water? Is there more to come? What's going on with the reject shop? Well, can I start with, you know, uh, by saying that the reject shop has been rejected by the shareholders? <laughs> uh, Stealing uh, my puns, nice work. So, um, yeah, uh, it was not a fun day to to have been a reject shop shareholder it's for really those people not. who, you know, the shares, I think, fell a lot I yesterday. Um, That's a technical term for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's... I mean, with many of these things, it's hard to mm. know exactly what is going on, right? Mm. I mean, same store sales uh, sales are what down for the first sixteen weeks or something like that, about three percent. I don't think it's quite sixteen weeks, but it's it's uh, it's the first the beginning of a few f- weeks of f- the, f- fifteen weeks, something like that. Yeah, fifteen weeks uh, down like two point four percent with some acceleration. That's towards, a lot. <laughs> with some acceleration in recent weeks. Sorry, right? Right. Yes. So yeah. and that recent acceleration is minus three point nine percent. So the numbers are getting worse. So they get, things are getting worse. Yep. Now the question really is why. I mean, as an investor, you'd think, you know, why is it getting worse, yeah. right? Um, I wish the, we knew. <laughs> and, the, and, and the company's not really helping, but, you know, the company yeah. basically blamed um, everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. <laughs> everything is wrong with the economy. Yep. The economy is not doing well. The yes. economy is not growing. But on the other hand, when the economic data comes out, we see, hey, <laughs> you know, the economy's <laughs> actually growing really fast. Yeah. Uh, or, for, you know, as fast as you'd expect a developed economy to grow. Yeah. Uh, you know, our unemployment rates are low. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really rising. Okay, there are some pockets of, you know, people are not getting as much work as they want and things like that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's really a good economy. Yeah. <laughs> There's no recession around in the corner. Or is there? So, so here's so, the thing. Yeah. If uh, Look, you're right. Every every retailer in particular going through tough times will blame everything mm. else. The weather, the economy, mm. the consumer, the company. It's always someone else's fault, right? So mm. let's let's assume that's probably what's going on here. Mm. But the reject shop's customers are probably the most, you used the word earlier today, vulnerable. Yes. They're the ones with least capacity to absorb cost increases or, you know, interest rates are going up, all that kind of stuff's going mm-hmm. on. Isn't that possible? Isn't it just possible at some level? I, I'm an optimist by nature, but if I was to to look a bit more clear, right, isn't it possible this is the canary in the coal mine for Rita? It could be. So, so I guess you know when you when you said interest rate, one thing that came to my mind just right now is, I mean, the interest rates have actually crept up. You know, right. some of them, you know, almost all banks in unison raised rates not too yep. long ago, right? Yep. Um, and then you know people are tapping into things like afterpay and so on. So you know, yep. debt debt is already there. It's already climbing. Interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, cost of living basically, therefore, is going up. And for, as you said, most vulnerable people, uh, it is difficult. That, right. That's one possibility, right? right? The other possibility is that uh, maybe after pay screwed up. Uh, <laughs> pardon my use of the language. Surely not. Uh, uh, and and what you know, I think with these sort of retail, so I mean, they're selling the cheap toothpaste and the yeah. cheap, you know tissue paper or whatever else in the cheap <laughs> chips. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes, you know, you need to also find the fidget spinners or whatever it is, the hot <laughs> product, right? And if you miss the hot product, yep. um, you, you missed a trick, yep. right? And then that can have an impact. Um, now, uh, to, uh, to I guess to the company's discredit, they didn't really tell us mm. what 
was the reason other than these broad reasons? So, they, they, gave us the, they gave us the alleged reasons, but they didn't give us enough information below that to try and work yeah. out what's going on. Now, there are fewer people coming to the shores. Are they shopping less frequently? Is there bit less being spent per basket? Yeah. Are there particular categories that are being impacted, particular stores or regions? That was completely absent from the announcement on Wednesday. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other possibility, I mean, there are a lot of possibilities here. The other possibility is like, you know, Amazon Prime is, has been discounting. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I have a discounted access to Amazon Prime. Although, you know, I just have it and have not bought anything from Amazon <laughs> Prime. But, uh, you know, people might be using Amazon Prime. Maybe they're using Kogan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, getting things delivered. You know, the cheap toothpaste, uh, you know, is available at Amazon Prime. You just buy it and it comes to your home instead even, of you going to… Even Kogan, mate. They're selling dishwasher tablets and toothpaste exactly. and coffee pods. Exactly. And, yeah. So, I mean, these two companies, if they're selling things online and you can mm-hmm. just order it from your phone, why would you maybe want to go to Reject Shop? And you can you can sh- you can price compare now on your phone, right? Yep, so, totally. I mean… So maybe that's you know maybe so maybe it's a combination of things, right? You know, I reckon that you know I've got, so my my guess I'll, I'll answer my own question. I reckon that's a very significant part of it. I think there's so I will say again our colleague Andrew Leggett, who I mentioned earlier, his view is it's not a, an online issue. I'm I'm guessing that in recent times it's more likely that than not. I think if you think about what's happened to the Regic shop, yes, it's been hit by Aldi, it's been hit by Kmart, mm. plenty of a competition, but that stuff isn't new. The stuff that's new year on year, the decline they've suffered in the last. 16 weeks, as you say. It's not the fact Kmart did something five years ago or Aldi entered the market 10 years ago. Yeah. This is something new and sudden. Now, maybe it's a blip. Maybe it's just the company screwed up their merchandising or pricing. Yeah. That's all possible. Or just maybe the bargain hunters who would otherwise go to the reject shop and try and get something cheap because everyone loves a bargain and there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of people out there who will go to a reject shop looking just, just you know looking around and seeing what they can find. I think it's very possible. I would, I would even argue probable, though, as I said, Andrew disagrees. So, you know, there's, there's room for different thought. I reckon... It's pretty likely, in my view, that people are bargain hunting online and simply not going to the reject shop anymore. Yeah. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's go over the over the ocean. Let's cross the Pacific. Because mm-hmm. speaking of, of retail challenges, <laughs> yeah. Sears is a name that most Australians would have heard, maybe mm-hmm. not super familiar with. The U.S. department store chain mm. entered what the Yanks like to call euphemistically Chapter 11 protection, mm. what we like to call bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh, it's really doing it tough, well, by definition, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it may not go out of business, but things are getting really, really difficult for Sears. Not long after Toys R Us went into administration, mm. um, it's the latest in a line of, of retail bankruptcies and it's kind of giving more rise to the idea of the ghost mall concept, that simply fewer and fewer people are shopping in physical locations, certainly fewer people at department stores. Give us a really quick summary, because not many people know or own Sears, but give us a quick summary of the Sears story and tell us whether we should be concerned about department stores here at home. Right. So, so Sears used to have, uh, you know, large, large number of, you know, their big Sears. They're like, you know, the big box format, mm-hmm. you know, clothes to everything else that you could buy mm. uh, across North America, so both US and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, they also actually run the Kmart stores uh, or they bought the Kmart chain uh, okay. in the US okay. not too long ago. Right. So um, they're closing stores significantly. Like they're basically... Mm-hmm. Uh, closing signal, and when they when they, when they say bankruptcy, what they basically mean here is that basically they are bankrupt, mm-hmm. and they're trying to salvage. <laughs> <Totally. laughs> they're trying to salvage um, what they can, yep. uh, what they call the most profitable stores. So at, and I think, uh, on the top of my head, I think at at peak they had maybe seven hundred plus stores or something like that. Yeah, it was big, right? It, it was, was huge. It was, it was the kind of. Pan American department store. It was, it was kind of you know there was there's Nordstroms and Macy's and they're kind of they're the higher end a few of them in the in the bigger areas. Yeah. 
Sears, I, I want to say, is American Meyer. I reckon that's yeah, the Meyer. Yeah, it's basically the American Meyer plus right. DJs. You know, David Jones maybe right, you know, right. put together as as one, uh, and. Uh, one of the th- things with these uh, retail bankruptcies is they tend to happen around uh, Christmas time, <laughs> yep. uh, or closer to Christmas time, <laughs> because you know uh, the um, the suppliers and people who are prov- uh, providing products they get a, a really uh, w- uh, in, they start worrying about you know having the c- giving uh, companies like uh, Sears credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they start you know uh, tightening the terms, and which makes it very difficult for a company which is probably has what five billion dollars plus of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it difficult for them to pay you know the debt <laughs> pay the <laughs> bondholders uh, and that's usually the time that these sort of companies basically you know say okay we need to enter sorts of uh, bankruptcy protection so so i, I think the the, the the it's the amazon story there it's mm-hmm. the story that you know the malls are doing it tough and uh, and that's really with what you know, retail spending online mm-hmm. in the us is less than 20% of the total total online spending is, is which is kind of on one level huge right if you think yeah. one of every five retailers spent online that's enormous yeah but I think you're making the point that it's got a bit of way to go in terms of its <laughs> yeah. growth from here. Yeah. So it was zero, let's say, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Now it's 20%. Yeah. And at 20%, we have had, uh, you know, Sears closing, Toys R Us closing. Trying to think like. of any other retailer in a, in a physical retail space who could open up 20 years ago yeah. and have a 20% market share. Yeah. It doesn't happen. No. You know, we haven't had Aldi come to the market here and take 20% market share. No. We haven't. It, it, does, it doesn't happen no. in, in, any other, in any other kind of facet of life. Some maybe in some industrial products or where there's big technological change, but this is that technological change. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So, and, and I think, you know, it's inevitable that that's going to, I think, continue happening. It's much faster in other places like, you know, the online spending is much higher in places like China, for example, mm, mm. Uh, largely because they don't have the infrastructure of, you know, you know right. so, so this, even you have the infrastructure issue, you skip the infrastructure and right. you go online, right? And, and, so that's and, fascinating. Sorry, just quickly, that's fascinating for both China and India. The, the, the kind of evolution the Australian consumer went through, we kind of had the corner store, then we had the big department stores in town, then we had the supermarkets everywhere, then we kind of went department stores and then online. That's kind yeah. of been our journey. Yeah. But it's very possible the developing world skips mall-based retail altogether and goes straight from corner store to pretty much get it online, get it delivered. Yeah, and, and absolutely. So if you're, I'll just use India as an example. Mm. So if you're in if you're in Bangalore, I mean they have beautiful big malls, okay. right? But it takes in Bangalore uh, approximately. I would say like, you know, maybe one hour to do five kilometers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot You're of traffic. You're not driving tra- to the shop, are you? Yeah, that's, that's a lot of traffic, right? right so right. Um, This is a city of 8.5 million people in 2011. I've just, I've just Googled it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's say it's what, 10 million now? Oh, probably 12 maybe. Right. So yeah. that, that's, that's effectively half of Australia in a mm-hmm. single city. And they're going to not have any significant, in your view and my view, any significant big shopping centers that, to speak of, certainly a number would, that would be required to serve that sort of population. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of those people are going online. But that's that's Bangalore, which has you know infrastructure, which mm-hmm. has got the malls to have the, or it's got the roads and maybe the airport right, and okay. the other transport to have the, the infrastructure to support things, right? right? Um, but if you're going to tier two cities, okay. those tier two cities are going to have it even harder, right? But right. those people have access to 4G. So I could today speak with people in, um, <laughs> you know, interiors of India, in villages of India, right. on, on using something like, you know, let's say WhatsApp mm-hmm. uh, and have a video call. It will be a very good quality video call. So in other words, Isn't they have cool? internet access. Yeah. <laughs> so those people, if they want to buy something, they could actually today go online and, you know, use the, use the Indian Amazon like Flipkart, for example, and, yeah. and buy stuff. <laughs> now owned by Walmart, interestingly. Now owned by Walmart, right? So it's kind of that story of Walmart basically realizing that Big Walmart supercenters in India aren't the future. Flipkart yeah. may well be the future for, exactly. for on retail there. Yeah. All right, mate. So, so bring it back home. 
Meyer and DJ's target, Big W Kmart. Are these guys endangered species? Are they are they on the way to death, or is there a place for some or all of them in the future? Well, in in, in my world, they're all all dead, right? They're not they're not really growing. Yeah, but in your world, anything anything growing less than twenty percent is dead. So yeah. let's let's come back to Scott world or to to, to, to the real world. I, yeah. I will say without without meaning to be harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do, do these guys all exist in ten years' time? Not all of them. Okay. No. I, 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 it's just hard, incredibly hard. I, I mean, you know, I, I think some of them will exist, you know, uh, as uh, those people who can have an online and offline experience, they're going to exist. You know, yeah. maybe there are things that you want to have an online experience and an offline experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe more niche type of format, things will exist. Yeah, uh, I, I think of malls as basically as meeting places. You know, they'll become basically like, you know, the movies and the uh, and the restaurants yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that. So, I, I agree with you. I think that the other thing for me is even if there are some, is there will still be retail being done. Yeah. But if you think about a decently sized Westfield or a decently Stockland or something else, main, so take, I know, so we, we, we get together every, every Friday at Bondo Junction. Mm-hmm. And if you go to the Westfield Bondo Junction, I won't know exactly because I don't know the shopping centre that well. But in that shopping centre, there's going to be a DJ's and or a Meyer. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a Kmart and or a Target and or a Big W. Mm-hmm. There's going to be specialty retail stores. It just doesn't seem likely to me, that even if people are shopping physically in 10 years' time, they will be, to be able to have effectively what are kind of duplicate-ish stores. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to, trying to delineate the difference between a DJ's and a Meyer and a Target and a Big W and a Kmart, you could probably do it. And yes, there are differences. Whether there's enough differences and, frankly, enough retail dollars to keep five of those stores in the same shopping centre, yeah, it just it strikes me as remarkably unlikely. Yes, you might want a cheap T-shirt from a department store. Well, you don't need Target and Big W and Kmart for that. You might want to buy cosmetics over a counter. Well, you don't need DJs and Meyer and Target for that. You know, you start to break this back and think, whatever I buy online, whatever I buy in, in, in physical retail, imagine the five groups are still in business and, and, and successful in, in 10 years' time is kind of a bit hard to imagine. Yeah, right? It's incredibly hard, I think. Yeah, that's almost unlikely. So we're not buying retail shares? Uh, well, you know, you could buy retail shares if they look attractive, they have a specialized, uh, you know, I, th- I guess, um, trajectory or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they have something special about them. Right. I mean- So much special about discount department stores, is there? Well, not really. <laughs> like I mean, there's. I mean, re- retail yeah. is. I mean, if you think about it, you know, Amazon is opening retail stores, right? Apple has right. been opening retail stores. So, I mean, the retail works. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it just works in a different different format now. Look at what you're selling. Yeah, and and there's no surprise that Apple has the I want to say highest sales per square foot of any retailer in the world. Any yeah. large retailer. And, and, and I mean, you no, know, Amazon is opening retail stores without any cashiers, right? right I right, mean, right. so I mean, in in a different world, things will exist in a different way, yeah. but not in the way we see it today. There you go. Own own Myron and DJ shares at your peril. In fact, DJ's not listed here anymore. It's yep, owned by voice certificate. <laughs> <laughs> they still dead. exist. They still exist. <laughs> Almost dead. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking of South Africa, I'm going to make a very awkward segue here, but stick with me. We'll edit this out later. Uh, we're going to move international, specifically the Australian dollar. Now, the dollar's mm. been kind of steadily falling 71-ish cents depending on what you look at and when you mm-hmm. look at it it wasn't that long ago it was a dollar 10 and certainly even even more recently it was 80 cents with a falling australian dollar we know it does a few things it makes the imports that we buy more expensive and so if you filled your car up at a petrol station recently you know exactly what that feels like it makes computers and tvs more expensive relatively speaking because we're paying more australian dollars for every dollar west or yen or renminbi or, or us dollar where we're, we're buying overseas it also makes our exports more competitive mm-hmm. because overseas buyers can simply spend less of their dollars mm-hmm. to get the same amount of our stuff in Australian mm-hmm. dollars. 
So in that kind of, with that kind of backdrop, how do investors play the falling Australian dollar? Cool. You already answered that. I mean, um, well, we know the, we know the economic impacts, but it doesn't necessarily mm. mean there's the same investing opportunities, are there? Well, so I, I think the I guess the most obvious ones are you know those companies that have, um, uh, especially in the sort of consumer discretionary world, who have got uh, mm. an export opportunity or those who have a significant export business. Mm-hmm. I think they are likely to do well. Um, you know, and if you're selling things in those companies that have sales in, for example, in US dollars, yep. though they're going to be reporting higher sales effectively in Australian dollars, right? right? I mean, those people who are buying, say, software or, you know, maybe the, maybe A2 milk or maybe Blackmore's mm-hmm. vit- vitamins. I mean, you know, you're, they're selling the same volume, probably charging the same US dollar amount. And therefore, in Australian dollar terms, you, you know, you're, get, you're getting more money coming in. So that's one. Right. Um, so and the other one, I, I think it may be less intuitive maybe, is the tourism, right? I mean, okay. our, our dollar being less is actually good for tourism. People will find that they can come to Australia and spend their money, enjoy our sights and sound and our everything. It's one of my favorite things. When we think about exports, we think about stuff we're sending overseas. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive to think about someone coming to Australia as mm-hmm. an export. But kind of, if you think about the flow of goods and services, foreign money being spent on Australian goods and services, exactly what exports are. Exactly, yeah. And so tourism is actually, and it's one of our biggest exports. It's going to, as you said, really benefit from. Look, I think that I love, I, I do, I'm not a very thematic investor, I've got to say. I'm generally a bottom up kind of guy. I don't look for themes and look for opportunities amongst that. But I can't help but find a lot of kind of the same ideas at play right now. When you think about. The, the opportunities for both exports of goods mm-hmm. and the opportunity for tourism exports in the sense that there are many, many more, you know, kind of Chinese specifically and Asian more generally tourists who are becoming wealthier, mm-hmm. who are traveling more, who have more money to spend on imported goods and services, mm-hmm. who are looking for clean, green Australian experiences, products, mm-hmm. services. We're kind of in the box seat, right? Like I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not saying buy anything that's export related or anything that's tourism related. And yes, there'll be winners and losers regardless. But if you think forward, if you think about the big, big macro trends, one of those big shifts has got to be the growing number of dollars being spent on Australian exports, even dollar aside. Yeah. And then you add the dollar to that, it's hard not to see this as an opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, again, you know, some sectors are going to be doing hard uh, because of the lower dollar. But I, I think that, mm. you know, as you said, I think tourism is a good one. E- even things like, you know, uh, what people call more defensive assets, like, you know, airports, for example, mm. right? You know, airports are going to have right, you know, right. more tourists coming in. Therefore, the airport's going to make, you know, more sales on the, uh, uh, on the shops yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, more tr- more travellers, more planes. Mate, the China's arrival numbers are going through the roof. Just yeah. year after year after year, they're growing at double-digit rates. Exactly. Like, we're, we're in the box. It, Maybe the Australian economy will still struggle for a whole lot of different reasons, but man, we are blessed by a lot of tourism coming to the, the country and a lot of export sales that are going to simply grow in dollar value and in volume because of this lower Australian dollar. Absolutely. And uh, as, as you said, like, you know, clean, green and, and, and a reputation for being safe, yep. right? Yep. Those, are, those are really big deal drivers for people who are want, wanting to spend their money and have good, a good right? time, having yep. a good time. Basically. Pretty good. Yeah. So. Now, let me ask you one question, though. Let me, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. For all of that, the dollar is already at 71 cents. Mm-hmm. And there's no point buying yesterday's trend. If you knew the dollar was going to fall, when, when the dollar was 90 cents, if you knew it was going to fall to 71, that would have been the time, really the big time to go and fill your boots with export stocks or tourism stocks or, or, or companies that rely on a, on a lower Australian dollar. Mm-hmm. At 71 cents, you could argue the party is somewhat over and maybe the, the right deal is actually do the reverse, to say, well, okay, maybe the dollar's going to go up next. And so maybe the time's over to be buying these sort of companies. What do you say? 
So again, so I'm a long-term investor here, and you know, I tend to invest with like you know, ten ten-year type of horizon. So mm-hmm. you know, the dollar as such, I don't pay that much attention. Okay, but. But if we talk about trends, I'll, I'll say a couple of things and I'll go back to my favorite thing, banking, <laughs> debt. The amount of I'm sorry, uh, household debt we've got basically has put the RBA in a, you know, the Reserve Bank yeah. in a very sticky position, right? Yeah. They can't increase interest rates fast enough mm-hmm. because that's going to make, uh, you know, make <laughs> the household <laughs> expenses go up more yep. than people can sustain. Uh, on the other hand, the U.S. economy is, for example, growing at a very fast rate mm-hmm. or relative to, I guess, what you'd expect. Yep. Uh, they're increasing rates uh, and their rates are already higher than ours, yep. right? And as we've talked many times here, the differential um, between the U.S. rates and our rates are going to have an impact in terms of you know the cost of borrowing and everything Indeed. else, but yes. it's going to also have an impact on the dollar, right? Yep. And, and I just don't see any catalyst in the at least in the near term mm-hmm. of how our dollar is actually going to rise. I mean, I mean, I could actually see a scenario where our dollar is actually at sixty cents, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you know, in, in my take is that maybe over over you know next several years, we we are not in a, in a situation where the mm-hmm. dollar is going to reverse. Now, the bull case for the dollar is that. Okay, so the RBA does decide to raise rates and feel like the economy can sustain it. Commodity prices stay high, and so the rest of the world demands Australian commodities, which pushes up the mm-hmm. dollar because they're, they're buying more Australian dollars to buy our commodities. Um, and the economy continues to be strong, so it kind of you know it supports or, or even pushes up the Australian dollar from here. You don't think that's likely, or just not on balance the most probable outcome, or, or simply the other the other forces are still too strong to so the dollar rise from here. So again, as I said, I, I, my view is that, in, and, and again, and on, on the basis of what I think may happen, mm-hmm. so my most probable outcome is the dollar uh, stays around where it is mm-hmm. uh, or goes down mm-hmm. some more. Uh, I just don't see enough reasons for it to go up. That, that's my view. Makes sense. Um, but, but of course, I deserve the 100% right to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let's move on, mate. That's a, that's a great summary. Thank you. And I think, look, uh, Phil's, you know, this is trying to forecast currency is stupidly crazy. And we, we kind of talk about it because it's in the, in the zeitgeist and people are asking about it. Um, as Doc said, we don't invest on the basis of currency. I think you're mad to do it. Um, buy good companies, buy great businesses. If you get a currency benefit out of it, then fantastic. That's the cherry on the cake. Um, but trying to buy the cherry and ignore the cake is kind of putting the cup for the horse to mix my metaphors horribly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we suggest you don't do it. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, we got a question during the week and it was a direct message, so I won't mention the questioner's name. If you do, send us a question and you do do it by direct message, please let us know if we want to, if you want us to mention you, we won't unless you give us permission. If you do tweet us directly in public, we will obviously use it because you've put it in the public domain. Here's the question, dog. At what point does a company price out its own customers? Examples, Apple's latest iPhone or NVIDIA's latest graphics cards, these are two US companies, which are the most expensive products from these companies to date. Should investors worry if a product or service of whom they are invested is priced too high? So kind of a common, double, double kind mm. of comment here. One is, one is a bit of self-referencing. So, hey, the iPhone's getting a bit bloody expensive. So that, you know, for me personally is one question. The other is, how far can these guys push their price up? And do they run the risk of, of pricing themselves out of a market, out of the growth they've been enjoying so far? What say you? This is a fantastic question. I mean, you know, in the analyst community and, and the people, the punditry, as I say, <laughs> um, for a long time they've been saying that, you know, uh, there's only so much you can do in terms of raising prices right. uh, for the iPhones. Right. And um, as I will quote what um, 
Warren Buffett has said. He has mm-hmm. basically said that the iPhone's screen real estate is probably the most valuable real estate in the world. That is my uh, that, that should have been obvious to everybody, but Buffett has a knack of putting this really clearly. When he talks about real yeah. estate, <laughs> you, so, you know, he talks about real estate. Real estate is it's, it's buildings, it's land, it's yeah. whatever. Anything about advertising on real estate or you know billboards, real yeah. estate. I, I, it's it's worth repeating that exact line, Matt, because I think that is just that's just brilliant, stunningly great, isn't it? Stunningly great, and, and and you know, and nobody does it better than Buffett. You You're know. right, yeah. Um, plus, you agree with him, so that helps. Plus, I agree with him. Plus, you know, <laughs> he and I both hold the Apple shares, so we, you know, we both right. <laughs> we we believe. Uh, I'll use Buffett to say that I'm right. Um, it's, it's, I mean, there is of course a limit to how much you can charge, but as Apple has shown, that you can have high end phones. Um, the absolute high-end phones that you're charging a lot for, mm-hmm. and then you basically what what Apple has done is basically kept the uh, the uh, the previous year's phones alive and running, yep. and they've improved the software so that you have lower-end options as well. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just got a range of products now, and uh, yeah, I mean you know some people like me are going to buy the new phones because they have to buy the new phones, <laughs> and some people are not going to buy the new phones because right. they don't have to buy the new phones, well, and I that's a, that's okay. Too. But but at some point, I guess the question is, at some point, does does this point to uh, some sort of uh, are we getting close to the top of what they can price stuff at? Is is this is it? So Peter Lynch talks about using the scuttlebutt method, right? Seeing what people are doing, talking about, thinking about. Part of the scuttlebutt method is going, man, that phone's getting expensive. There can't be much more headroom on price, can there? Is is that something we should be thinking about at least in a relative sense? So I, I think we're getting to the top end, is my guess. Mm. But but I wouldn't be surprised to see you know year on year some increase as as they roll out new technologies. Right? You know, they, mm. the iPhone ten basically had uh, you know a lot of new things. Yeah. And and therefore they could charge that price, and people were like you know very happy to pay that <laughs> price. You know you could see that in those numbers. Indeed. So so I think there's there's a there's a thing, and then the same thing with Nvidia. You know, as he asked, I mean Nvidia's chips are doing more and more and more, and mm. Nvidia's chips have a lot of opportunity, and therefore mm. you can mm. charge. Mm. It depends on the utility as in, in the Buffett way, right? It depends on the utility. If it's right. a, if it people think it has a utility, people will pay for it, right? I mean, you know, why do people pay for, like you know sixty thousand dollars, eighty thousand dollars for a BMW car? Mm-hmm. You could, you know, you could drive, drive a Kia and does exactly the same thing, takes right, you from A right, to B. Right. <laughs> that being said, if BMWs were originally priced as cares and the price started going up, you'd expect them to sell less cars, right? Like at some point, there is a trade off there between yeah. what you're buying and what you're selling, and how many of them you can sell. I, I will add one, and I don't think this is necessarily a Buffett one, but I think it is actually. I'm pretty sure I saw him on CNBC say something like this. If you think, and I don't valuable real estate, but if you think about how engaged we are with our phones, think about the number of hours we spend in a day, week, month, year on our phones, the ROI in terms of what we would spend for a month on Netflix or a ticket to the movies or whatever, if you break down a, let's call, let's call it a $1,000 phone because it makes my life easier, mm. that's, that's 10 bucks a week for two years. Yeah. And if you think about how much time you spend on that phone, it's probably what twenty cents an hour. Yeah, I mean, you'd pay more for a movie, you'd pay more for Netflix, Coffee. you'd pay more for right, exactly. Yeah. And so, it's a, it's a very very high ticketed price. If you could pay for a phone by usage, it would cost you a squillion dollars, and people would pay it. If you actually, Apple will never do this right, but if you actually gave people iPhones, it will charge you ten cents an hour for use. They would make a fortune. They make so much more than the, the price they're currently charging, right? Because we would just we wouldn't be able to help ourselves. We all go broke trying to pay our pay our phone bills. Yeah, um, it's just astonishing the amount of time, effort, and and value we get out of these devices. Yeah, and it's brand power, right? I mean, Apple has the brand power to charge, and therefore, it, you know, it's doing that. Well, exactly. Yeah. People paying. Look, I think I think what I like about the question they made is, a, it's scuttlebutt, as I said. The second is it, it kind of asks about how, how do we, how do we think about pricing? I think you and I pretty much believe that. They're priced highly, but not unreasonably. And, and as you say, 
Apple has some smart people working on how much they can afford to charge for these things, and they're, they're delivering growth year on year. In fact, a lot of their growth is actually coming from price increases, not from volume increase, mm-hmm. but there is a natural cap to that. And at some point, yep. you can't keep the price of phones increasing at a much faster rate than inflation for too long. Yep. Eventually, you're going to price yourself out of every pot. You know, $2,000, $5,000, $10,000 for a phone, of yep. course, no one's paying that. So there is a natural limit. Apple hasn't found it yet. Yep. Plenty of room to go. Modly for money. Mate, we're going to go on one last question before we wrap up. We're going a bit long, but I, I like it because I like answering some of our, our listeners' questions. And, and Phil, while you're listening, if you have a question, you can hit us up two ways. You can hit us up on Twitter, at the Motley Fool AU is our corporate Twitter account. Hit us up with a question there, either by direct message or just simply tweet at us on, on Twitter. The other options you can go directly to Anirban or myself. Anirban is Anirban Mahanti, all one word. I'm TMF Scott P. That's the Motley Fool. So TMF Scott P, P for Phillips. Or you can email us if you want to use email instead, info at fool.com.au. Send us a question, send us a comment, let us know what you think of the podcast, what you want us to talk about, topics, issues, questions. Please throw them at us because as we say regularly, this podcast is for you. We like hearing the sound of our own voices, of course, but it's no fun doing it if no one listens. And if we do uh, answer your questions, if we know what you're thinking, then it makes it more valuable for us and hopefully more valuable for you as well. We love your questions. We Bring do. them on. Let's go. Two questions from a another uh, respondent, a correspondent who again didn't uh, give us permission to use their name, so we won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first question is: uh, it's, it, This is a little bit inside baseball, mate. This is about our services, mm-hmm. so we will answer it because it was asked. We won't spend too much time on it because some of our listeners may not yet be a member of our services. But hey, if you want to get full value out of this question, why not join one of the Motley Fool services? And then you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, it's the question is this: um, We, my wife and I, have subscribed to Share Advisor, which is the one I run. You run Extreme Opportunities, and both are great services. We think. We're a bit confused with the number of recommendations. So if your aim is to beat the market, and we want to do the same, which is awesome, does it mean we need to buy each and every recommended stock? In other words, if we cherry pick some, how can we ensure we'd get a similar return as you will? This question is even more relevant if we decide to sign up for extreme opportunities, which is yours, as I said. Mm-hmm. From what we understand, an earbarn is targeting higher growth stocks, but at the same time, it might mean more stocks might make more losses. How would we ensure we don't choose these making losses and miss the good ones? That's a great question. Answer that question for me, mate. In, okay. in, in 25 words or less? In, okay, okay, okay. 40, okay. 40 words. I'll give you 40 words. <laughs> you're putting me under pressure here. Uh, totally. uh, number one is that you need to buy a number, especially if you're in extreme opportunities, mm-hmm. you should be buying a number of stocks. Yep. You, if you buy just one, you might get the winner. You might get the loser. Yep. Right. Um, in the Motley Fool, we say that, you know, at least you should buy 15. Yes. You know, in my own personal views, you should buy maybe 30. Yep. So <laughs> uh, David Gardner, our co-founder, says get to 15 as quickly as you possibly can as, as one of the first things out of the gate. Yep. Don't just stop at 15, but get to 15 as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah, and and that, and that smooths out a lot of volatility. It also gives you more, more you know, more opportunities to win. Mm-hmm. In in extreme opportunities, what we say is that if you want to match the performance of what our service is doing, you pretty much need to buy everything. Yep. Right. If you don't want to use it that way, um, and, and the reason we have said that is that the service is relatively new. We don't have that many wrecks on yeah, it, right. so you know you can't really you know choose right. But at some point we'll get there, and then we'd probably say you know you buy maybe twenty odd mm-hmm. to to go. And, and then you add what you like, yep. right? And, and I think that's what I would say, that you know, if you've b- bought enough, mm-hmm. you've diversified across uh, different companies, maybe different sectors, if mm-hmm. you can, across the scorecard, you should get something similar. Mm-hmm. It won't be exactly the same, but you get something similar. So just the, the kind of maths behind this, you're the, you're the scientist and yeah. the PhD in the room. Uh, generally speaking, if you buy something, that a, a large enough number that approaches a representative sample, It'd be like buying it, you know, when we talk about diversification, the, the, the academics say roughly that 25 to 30 stocks, once you've yep. bought that many, you're kind of going to approximate the index return. Yeah. And we say something similar when it comes to our services. Yeah. So, you, you, know, in, in, you know, you'd say that if you, you do, you know, you pick 30 
mm-hmm. you should get something very similar to the average. It's yep. if you pick 30 stocks from, or 30 shares from EO, mm-hmm. we, we don't have 30, but if you did, yep. you should get something similar. Or if you do over time, right? Yeah, we're we're we're, every yeah month. and uh, yeah, we'll, as I said, right now we don't, yep. uh, and we're adding every month. Yep. Uh, but, you know, you did the same thing on, on share advisor, and you should, you should roughly, you know, you're never going to get be exactly there, but, yep. you know, the share advisor is beating the market over like more than 2x. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to get a performance that's similar to that, right? Right. It might not be exactly. Maybe you do better. Maybe do slightly worse. But you know, hey, if you if you're in that ballpark, you should be very very happy. And the more you are, the closer is statistically to be exactly likely approximating. Exactly. Yeah. I will. I'll add one more rider, mate, very quickly because what I've seen members do in the past is they've cherry picked our recommendations. And they haven't bought a representative sample because they've said, well, okay, Scott, you made all these recommendations, but I'm only going to buy the retail stocks or I'm only going to buy the tech stocks or I'm only going to buy the fast growers or I'm only going to buy the the value stocks or whatever else it is. And at some level, when you start to apply your own filter like that, it, yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter how well, – it doesn't matter – the more you buy, the more chance you have of getting the average return. But it's entirely possible that, for example, I might be better at picking tech stocks than retail stocks or Australian stocks versus US stocks or whatever whatever the, 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 the form is. If you start to try and filter and delineate and only choose a certain subset, that subset may not get the average return of the total service. Yeah. And so I would say for members who are listening um, – and again, if you do want to join us, that would be awesome. Uh, but either way, buy a representative sample from the scorecard, not just – the retail stocks you like retail. Or don't ignore retail because you don't like retail. Um, you want to pick a representative sample both in terms of number, but also a rough diversification across industry. It's important. Yeah, I agree. Modly for money. Mate, one last question before we wrap it up and we mm-hmm. will try and get there reasonably quickly. Another question I have relates to having a mortgage and buying stock at the same time. Given the compounding interest, should we first aim to repay the loan and then start investing in shares? Or is it better to keep paying the loan as per the 30-year schedule and invest in shares, assuming the return on shares will be higher than the interest rate? That's a tough question. Now, we can't give personal advice, we will say. So this is general advice only. Um, Doc, what's your thought on that? If you had a mortgage and you're, you had an investment account at the same time, how would you balance the two? Okay. So as, I, as you said, this is, you know, this is, this is what I do. This, yep. is, not, this is my, my take, mm-hmm. not personal advice. Um, I, we have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pay the mortgage as um, as it goes, like as whatever is the payment. Mm-hmm. Um, the mortgage, you know, right now you can get one. You know, ours is around four percent, but I think if you know if you work hard, you can get even lower ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the stock market over the long term does nine percent. That's the market, mm-hmm. right? If you're beating the market, you could do ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, <laughs> even more, yep. right? That's a big difference. If you even just taking the market value nine percent or ten percent and minus that with four, you're you're six percent ahead, mm-hmm. right? And and the mortgage is probably the single biggest expenditure for right. any individual. It's if you want to pay that first, then you'll not invest. Yep. It's very difficult. Or, or or fortunate people can do it, but not yes. not not everyone. Yep. Uh, right. So because so, a big mortgage and how much you're earning all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Yep. So so for us, we have always invested in uh, in 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 shares mm-hmm. because they have higher returns mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, if there's, yeah, of course, if there's some money sitting on the side because for some reason that it sits in an offset account, it's, we have, you know, we are lucky that we have this facility in Australia to call, mm-hmm. which is called offset. But otherwise, you know, uh, I'm not looking to pay it first. Of course, if there was a situation where the interest rates were to become 18% right. as it did long time back, yep. Yeah, yep. then it does, does make, make sense to actually pay that. Yep. Right. So what I would say is that if you have credit card debts, mm-hmm. Those are typically higher. Pay that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. I agree. Um, but when 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 the mortgage rates are low, I'd still invest because you know I just got better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna slight, look. I, I do the same. So first thing I'll say is you know this is what I do. I I will do exactly the same. We have a mortgage. We invest separately. Um, we do both at the same time. If if we think about if we break this back, 
if you're paying, say, 5% on a home loan, if you pay that off, the, the saving you make is effectively a much higher rate when you consider the tax implication. Because if I make if I make 7% on shares, I've got to pay a portion of that, and let's call it 30% just to make life easy. Um, I've got to pay 30% of that in tax. So that's 2.1% of that 7 goes in tax. I'm left with 4.9. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm paying 5% of my mortgage, I'm actually better off to pay the mortgage than to invest in shares, even though the nominal rate is higher, because paying off your home loan is a tax-free saving mm-hmm. or a tax-free return, if you like, whereas shares are a taxable return. So there mm-hmm. is that thing to think about as well. Mm-hmm. Also, too, I would say, think about where you are with your mortgage relative to, and you talk about offset, relative to your repayment schedule. So if you get to a position where you, you lose your job or something else happens, you want to be a little bit ahead on the mortgage before mm-hmm. you do it. So again, there's a what what is technically correct, academically correct versus what's kind of decent practice. I think there's some value in getting ahead on the mortgage personally. I'd also say that for what it's worth, think about the average return you're getting, but also your temperament, how you feel about that sort of return and where you really want that money to be. I think you're right, Doc. You are dead right. In terms of the compounding of both numbers, if you can compound your investments at a faster rate than the home loan's compounding, then you absolutely should invest in shares. That makes perfect, perfect sense. But the home loan being paid off is risk-free and Mm tax-free, and those are two things that most of our listeners should keep very well at the front of their minds. So I I invest in and pay off the mortgage, as do you, as do many people. I think that's probably still a good way for most people. But know yourself is probably the answer I would give. If you're mm-hmm. someone who wants the certainty, if you like the, the saving the tax, if you like having effectively a risk-free payment, then it makes a whole lot of sense to pay the home loan off first or at least pay it off substantially so you get yourself ahead of the mortgage. Uh, otherwise, academically, if you can get the market's average return of 10% before tax, throw a couple of franken credits on top of that, maybe you get to 11 or 12 on average. Compare that to a 4 or 5% home loan rate. In fact, if you're paying 5%, you're paying too much unless you've got an investment property. So if you're fools out there one one piece of really actionable advice now if you're paying more than 4% on your mortgage go to your bank demand a lower rate or change banks you shouldn't be paying more than 4% on an owner-occupied mortgage that's my bit of mm-hmm. effort bit of uh, that, call it my mini rant mm-hmm. uh, go and get a better rate please because otherwise you're just paying the bank for nothing which is just awful awful waste Otherwise, I think you should invest in shares over the long term. Do both. It makes mm-hmm. sense. I'll add one quick thing as well. Sure. Um, so the other thing, with, with, you know, the tax implication is real, but it depends on where you're investing. So if you're investing, for example, from a super, you're not mm-hmm. paying that tax. Also, if you're not, or you you're paying pay a lower, you're paying lower, lower yep. tax. Correct. Right. And and if you're holding your shares and not selling them, you're yep. not paying any tax right now. Yep. Which which is, I mean, the other thing that yep. you know you could do in your investment is that you know I tend to hold long term, and if mm-hmm. you hold long term, you're not paying any tax on it. You're paying tax on your dividends and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you're getting some franking credits, you know. So, uh, a lot of these things can work to your advantage. Yep. And and the the final thing that I would say is that you know when you invest, when I invest in stocks, one of the things that happens for me is that that money seems to have disappeared yeah, totally. <laughs> somewhere else. Totally. And therefore, I have less propensity to spend it on something else. <laughs> yep. and, and, and the other thing, too, I will say, just, I'll, I'll like very quickly to this. The other thing about paying the mortgage off first, it makes sense. As, if you want to do that, go for it. As long as you make yourself put exactly the mortgage repayment into shares once you've paid off the house. Plenty of people will say, let's pick a number. Let's say we're paying two grand a month off the house, right? Let's just pick that number. Mm-hmm. If you pay two grand a month forever until you pay the house off, you ought to put that two grand the month after. It's going to go straight into shares. Mm. Most people will say, oh, they've got to pay it off. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take half that money. I'll go for a holiday. Mm-hmm. I'll put the other half in shares. You, you actually will. Yeah, and this is where behavioral finance is so incredibly valuable and important. Mm. Once you give yourself permission to not do that, yeah. all of the all of the benefits we've just talked about completely evaporate because yeah. you've gone and wasted that money and you spent it rather than investing it instead yeah. of paying off the mortgage. So as long as you're really, really consistently doing it, then there's value. I would say to your point, Doc, you you want to you want to create good habits yep. now, and again, it's kind of, you know, what's academically correct, what's theoretically correct, they're all interesting. 
What's far more valuable is what you can behaviorally do and do regularly. That's the important one. Yeah, know yourself, fools. Know yourself. That'll do us. Fools, thank you very much for listening to another Motley Fool Money. We do love doing it, as I said, and thank you very much for taking the time, making the effort. Uh, we love hearing your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so please send us some more mailbag. Doc, that does wrap us up. Before we yeah. go, we would like our listeners to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through Apple iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And, of course, you can go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M, M, and you will get the best the Motley Fool has to offer our free newsletter, a little bit of marketing, to be, to be fair and to be clear, but we reckon there's some pretty good deals you want to take advantage of as well. Until next week, Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.